We live in a world filled with injustice. You don't have to look long around the news to see injustice abounds everywhere. According to the World Health Organization, some 50 million children are aborted worldwide each year. Around the world, there are brothels filled with exploited boys and girls. The elderly, both men and women, are often neglected and abused and taken advantage of. Scammers prey on widows and widowers trying to get their, their money in days of maybe less clarity. There are impoverished tribes that are slaughtered regularly throughout Africa and Asia. Everywhere we look, there is racism, bigotry, there's rape, there's corruption. There's world leaders, including our own president, who use power for, for their own end and don't care who it affects. Injustice abounds. We could sit here all day and list them, national and personal. One of the things that gets stirred up in us, or at least should, as we navigate this world of injustice is the very important question of, does God see and does he care? And is he going to do anything about it? Those questions are, are appropriate, and they were abounding back in the year 760 B.C. as well as in our day, the day of Amos. 760 B.C., some corruption abounded, oppression abounded, injustice abounded, even among God's own people. And God raised up a prophet named Amos to speak into it and to let the world know, and then in God's wisdom and mercy, to have it preserved for us to know as well that God sees and God cares and God roars against injustice. That is the big idea of our sermon this morning and really of the whole book of Amos in, in various ways is that God sees, God cares, and God roars against injustice. This book of Amos is arranged in three pretty clear sections. Chapters 1 and 2, which we'll look at this week and next week, we see prophecies that God speaks through through Amos, appears to give him visions and then moves him to speak. Then in chapters 3 through 6, we see a set of sermons that he addresses to the nation of Israel. And then in chapters 7 through 9, we see visions that he is given, that he relays, that depict both God's judgment and God's restoring tender mercies. This book is a difficult book. 
It is difficult because it is heavy, it is weighty. It, it points out places that are uncomfortable in us. It's very difficult to read the book of Amos without the context in which we live screaming at us for attention from various sides. So I want you to pray for me as I work through this, for all of us to be fed, including me, and guided, including me, by God's word and not any agenda from anyone else. This is our heart, and I'm going to do my best. Our text this morning is going to be Amos 1.1 down through 2.3. In these first two chapters, we're getting these prophecies from Amos where he is, he's going to be addressing nations and their, their sins and their injustices. And this week, we are going to focus on God roaring against unjust sinners, against the, the Gentile, pagan, unbelieving nations. And then next week, we're going to see God roar against unjust saints, that God's going to turn his attention specifically to his people, the people of Judah, and then specifically uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, and he is going to, to speak to them. Next week, we're going to have much more application for how this applies to the church, whereas this week, it's, it's more nationally as we think about how God's word is, is aimed this morning. God sees, he cares, and he roars against injustice. In light of that, number one, God raises up a prophet. God raises up a prophet. Secondly, God roars at the peoples. God roars at the peoples. And then thirdly, God relents of his patience. God relents of his patience. God raises up a prophet. He roars at the peoples and he relents of his patience. Let's look here at verse 1-1. God raises up a prophet. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, I think it would be helpful for us to get oriented into when is this happening. So I'm going to give you a very brief review of the Old Testament. After the flood, God creates a world. Everybody rebels. God floods the world. He saves a family. From that family, uh, there are descendants, and he calls out a man, a man named Abram. He was an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldeas, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He was an old man, so it was unlikely for him to have any children, but God miraculously provided children for him. And from his, his beloved son, Isaac, there is a great nation that comes. So you have Abraham, and then there's Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. He has 12 sons through some pretty shady ways, but anyway, he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of the nation of, of Israel. These 12 sons then, they grow, and then they end up in Egypt where they are oppressed, and then they're delivered by uh, God through a man named Moses. They get his law. Uh, he says, hey, we're going to the promised land, this land where I promise my presence and my protection and my provision for you. And they're like, actually, we're scared. We don't think you're good enough to do it. And he says, fine. So they wander around for 40 years. That generation dies off. He then takes the next generation, takes them into the land under a man named Joshua, where God uses Israel and their sword as his instrument of judgment against uh, the wicked, idolatrous nations who were there. They settle in the land, and then you come to the book of Judges, and you have these seven cycles of, um, ah, we want idols. They have, we get oppressed by their rulers. Help us, God. He gives judges, raises up, and there's these cycles where God delivers his people, and they rebel against him, and we go through that. And then 
you have the nation crying out, we want a king like the rest of the nations. God says, no, you don't. He says, yes, we do. He says, fine, thy will be done, which is sometimes the scariest thing that God can say. And he gives them a king like the nations, a guy named Saul. He's the first king of Israel. Followed him by, so Saul had no heart for God. Then you have a guy named David who had a full heart for God. He was a sinner, but he loved God and feared God. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon started great. His kingdom expanded to its full borders of promise uh, that, that God had promised for the nation to have. They had a, a, a time of prosperity and peace unlike any other. And then he is, his heart was corrupted into idolatry and the nation split into two, two, two kingdoms. It went from the one kingdom to the two. You have the northern kingdom, also known as Israel, who had about 20 kings. All of them were bad. Not even one good one. They're all bad. They were then taken away in exile in 722 by Assyria. You have the southern kingdom, also known as Judah. About 20 kings as well, some good, mostly bad. They were taken off into exile as well by the Babylonians in 586, 605 to 586. Okay, so that's kind of the, the history. The Lord tells us here in Amos when, where we are on that, that chart. This Prophecy happens in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, southern kingdom. He reigned from 790 to 740. And in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. He reigned 793 to 753. Amos' ministry is right around the year 760. So the kingdom's been divided for about 150 years, and they're about 40 years until Assyria comes and take away the northern kingdom. That's kind of where, where we are, all right? He tells us here that Amos ministered two years before the earthquake. There was a great earthquake that um, Josephus wrote about that he said occurred in the days when King Uzziah went into the temple to offer up sacrifices. You can see that event in 2 Chronicles 26. It doesn't record the earthquake there, but that's when Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, said that it happened. And I did some reading on it this weekend, probably a little too much, but anyway, um, there's recent geological and archaeological evidence that points to a great earthquake around 760 B.C. in that area. This is the one everybody would have known in these days, and uh, we've got to trust them in our own. So around 762, 760 is when this is. Well, who is this guy? Who is this Amos? Well, we don't know much about his, uh, his family. He doesn't show up really anywhere else in the Bible, but he served as a prophet uh, on behalf of God to God's people. It says here, the words of Amos, which he saw. He's getting revelation from God. And when it says he saw it, it's likely that it came in some sort of a vision. So a vision, when a prophet receives a, a vision from the Lord, it is, it's kind of like virtual reality where you see events played out in front of you and they feel very real and they seem very real because they, they are reality, but it's not actually happening in front of you. He, whatever that experience is, he has that and he gets this revelation from God about what's happening and what is going to, to happen. The words of Amos, which he, he saw. He, by the way, is going to be contemporaries of Isaiah and, and Micah in the south and Hosea in the north. So they would have all gone to seminary together and kind of hung out. They would have known each other. Okay, they read each other's books and all that kind of stuff. They, they knew one another. Um, they, were, they were contemporaries. Now, now Amos was not your, your, your typ typical prophet, though. 
It says here in verse 1, he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is a small town about 5 to 10 uh, miles south of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. Uh, he is what you might call a country boy. So he's, he's, not your typical, he's not your typical prophet. If you look in chapter 7, verse 14, he, he says more about this. Amos said, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So, so Amos didn't have a degree from seminary. He didn't have some kind of, you know, prophet pedigree in his family. Uh, he was a common laborer. He was a, a calloused hand country boy who smelled like sheep. And, and, and he, he knew how to harvest sycamores. That's, that's about, that was about what he had. So in one sense, he's, he's the last guy for this job. He even seems like he feels that there in, in chapter 7. He's got no impressive ministry uh, resume. He's got, you know, no ministry uh, contacts on LinkedIn. He's, he's, he's not in the loop, which I think is really helpful for all of us just to remember. God doesn't always call the qualified. In fact, he rarely does. He, he most normally calls people who are inadequate in and of themselves, always in that sense, but, but he is always going to equip those that he calls. So if you feel like God could never use me, well, don't be fooled, because the Lord loves to use those who know that they're inadequate. Amos felt that, and God used him nevertheless. Well, where was this? Again, his, his, uh, his home was in the small town of uh, just south of J Jerusalem. But God called him to go to the northern kingdom to speak against the sin that was going, going on there. Again, verse 1, the words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel. So anytime you see Israel used like that, specifically among the prophets, he's talking about the northern kingdom. Anytime you see him talking about Jerusalem or Judah, he's talking about the, the southern kingdom. So God sends this country boy on a mission trip up north. He's going to the big city. He's going to go up to Samaria and talk to the king there. Now, why is God raising up Amos to go on this mission trip up to the northern kingdom? What's going on in Israel that would move God to do this? Well, you've got to understand that, that under Jeroboam in this time, there was great political and military prosperity. So Jeroboam had been king for about 30 years at this point, and he had, similar to Solomon, unprecedented peace and prosperity in his day. In fact, his borders, the, the, the borders of, of Israel, when he was reigning, had expanded as far as Solomon's. And there was no other king who ever experienced that other than Solomon and Jeroboam. So politically and militarily, he had a great resume. Things looked good. There was also great economic prosperity in this time. The, the rich were super wealthy. You're going to see that all the way through this, this book. They were rich enough to have multiple houses. They were rich enough to have expensive furniture in all of their houses. So the multiple houses, chapter 3, expensive furniture in it, chapter 6. He's going to get to those things. He's going to point them out. They had limitless indulgence, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, whatever they wanted to eat, drink, dress in. They had everything. They, they knew yeah, affluence. 
But at the same time, it's not well for everyone. You see, the wealthy and powerful think it's going well for them, but they're actually blind to their corruption. And the oppressed would have known well that things were not good in Israel. You see, there was, there was ex- exploitation of, of the poor. Racketeering was pervasive throughout the land. And the poor were being crushed on every front with the corrupt business practices. The real estate market, they're getting crushed in. In the courtrooms, they're, they're, they have nobody to represent them. In the business trading, people would, would lie and steal from them, and there's nobody to help them. Everywhere they turned, they found someone trying to take advantage of them. The, the poor were powerless. The, the, the widows were getting whooped on. The, the orphan was being oppressed. The, the foreigner who was supposed to find refuge in Israel, all of these oppressed people instead found money-hungry, power-grabbing, luxury-living, evil-indulging, religious-appearing people who used their influence to oppress, who used their affluence to further their own comforts rather than extend mercy and compassion and assistance to the needy. And when you read through the Bible, if, there's, if you want to get on God's bad side, one sure way to do it is to harm the helpless. If you want to get on God's bad side, the, the way that you do it is you oppress people who can't defend themselves. You take advantage of the power that you have at the expense of somebody else. You ignore fellow image bearers and use your power and your position to stomp on them so you can get ahead. Well, God sees and he cares and he roars against that injustice. So, number one, he raises up a prophet, Amos. Secondly, God roars against the people. Verse 2, Amos here points to the Lord who sees evil and speaks to his people through the prophet. The Lord roars from Zion, verse 2, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars from Zion. First thing to just note there is his name, the, the Lord in all caps here. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, good, just, righteous God of Israel. He is speaking from, from Jerusalem, the place where justice is supposed to be manifested among his people because he's given them uh, his law, but rather it's where injustice is abounding because they've silenced the law. They put the mute button on the Bible. This message is from him. One of the observations I hope you'll make as we study through this book is the phrase, thus says the Lord or declares the Lord. Those phrases show up 14 times in the first two chapters alone and some 
42 times in nine chapters. Nine chapters, 42 times, thus says the Lord, declares the Lord. God wants you to know that this message is not finding its origin in, in Amos. This comes from the almighty God of heaven. This is God's word to a sinful people. And this is really important for us to just to think about for one moment, is that God is not silent. Which is such a sweet mercy, isn't it? That there's a God who's speaking. He's a speaking God. He's a relational God. He, he's, he does not want us to go about wondering what he thinks. He does not want us to go around blind and, 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 and deaf spiritually. So he speaks a word to his people. He does not want to leave us guessing. Now, sometimes what God will do to help us understand him better is he will liken himself to things in, in nature. And he does that here with, with an animal. He does this throughout the Bible. So like in, in Deuteronomy 32, you've got uh, God likens himself to an eagle to highlight that he's the one who guides and protects and provides for Israel just as an eagle does for uh, her young Hosea 13, you've got God showing up as a leopard and a bear who devours those who reject him, these fierce animals. In the Gospel of John, in the book of Revelation, the, the Lord Jesus is portrayed as a lamb, a, a sacrificial savior who dies in the place of his people. And now here in Amos, the Lord roars like a what? Like a lion. The Lord roars here from Zion. Now, how many of you have ever heard a lion roar before? That's not something that you're like, oh, that's cute. That's not what a lion's roar does. I had never actually heard one until a couple years ago when I was at the, the National Zoo, and we're just standing there, and there's this lion just sitting there, and we're just like, hey, hey, lion, how's it going? You know, I mean, I don't know, just looking at it. And then all of a sudden, it turns, and it lets out this, this roar that was so deep and strong and powerful, I could literally feel it in my bones. There's just so much power there. And everybody who was out there just was quiet and just looked at it. That same sort of reverence and fear that you, that you have when you encounter a lion's roar is what Israel was intended to have when the Lord roars forth his word here. God's going to be referred to as a lion in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 5. So these words are roaring forth to the people through the prophet. These are divine messages with divine authority. God sees injustice and he speaks about it. Now before we go into the next point, we need to ask a very important question. Why does God roar so viciously as he does in this book against injustice? Why does God respond the way he does when he sees injustice occurring? It's, it's because of who he is. Because God is good. 
God is righteous. He is full of love and compassion and tender mercies. This is his very nature. So the right response of a good God against evil is to roar against it with justice. He would not be a good God if he just overlooked it and just said, oh, they're just people. Or I'll just forgive them because I'm a nice God. That does not make him a nice God. That makes him a corrupt, weak God. If God is good, he must roar against all evil. Because he is good. Listen to this, Psalm 10, 17. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Hosea 14.3, in you the orphan finds mercy. Deuteronomy uh, 10.17, the Lord your God is, a, is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What an amazing picture. That he's the God of gods and Lord of lords, great, mighty, awesome, and so tenderly concerned about weak people. The book of Amos is filled with both the tenderness and the terror of God. His tenderness toward those who are being oppressed and the terror that he will bring against those who do the oppressing and who will not repent. Which brings us to our third point. God relents of his patience. God relents of his patience. In chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through 2-3, really through the end of the, the chapter, we find a, a, a pattern for each of the eight nations that he addresses on God's behalf. You're going to see a, a phrase show up. You can see it there in verse 3. For three transgressions and for four. You're going to see that show up eight times. For three transgressions and for four. It's a, it's a poetic device that is helping us to understand God is saying, my patience has run out. The, the word transgress, it means to deliberately step over a boundary in rebellion. It's the, yeah, no trespassing. And you're like, whatever, I'm coming in. That's a, tr that's a trespass. It's a transgression. That is what sin is. It steps over the line of God's command and says, I'm going to go in or do what I want to do. So the picture here is for three transgressions and for four. They sin, God patiently endures. They sin, God patiently endures. They sin, God patiently endures. But there comes a time when God's patience expires. Not because he changes in who he is, but because their iniquity reaches a certain place where God will now bring justice. 
The time for justice has arrived here. Which as I was even thinking about just that little phrase, I, I thought it might be helpful for us to, to be honest with ourselves this morning. Are some of you testing God's patience this morning? Certainly we all sin and we are all sinners. And God is very patient and tender-hearted toward those who are broken over their sin. But for those who cover their sin and hide their sin and pretend that they have no sin, for those who repeatedly hear his warnings and continue to hold on to their sin and be unwilling to let go of it, the book of Amos would warn us with very strong language, do not test the Lord your God. In Amos' day, God's patience had run out, and the whole world is put on notice. God is coming, and when he does, things are going to get crazy. Another thing to notice as we go through each of these is that I will not revoke the punishment. That shows up eight times. Literally, I will not turn back. The time for mercy has expired. God says it's over. No bargaining. It is time for justice to come. Now, one of the questions somebody asked me this week that I thought was a really helpful question was, what's God's standard for the judgment of these nations that we're about to look at? Well, it's, it's not God's law. God's law is the standard for his people, for Israel and Judah. We're going to see that next week. But rather, what it is, it's the natural law, if you will, of creation and conscience. It is, it is God's law that is displayed, Romans 1 tells us, in the creation, where everybody can look and see there's a creator. And it's in the conscience in which every human being knows deep down the difference between right and wrong. That, that general revelation that God has given to people in creation and conscience, which nobody can escape regardless of your cultural uh, upbringing or whether you're religious or not, everybody has that evidence. That is the driving evidence against them. You know you don't want somebody to kidnap you or kidnap your children. Then why do you do it to somebody else? You know you don't want somebody to slander against you and betray you. Then why do you do it against someone else? Is what God would say. It's natural, general revelation. And that is the standard that he will use. Romans 1, by the way, says that we know that inherently and that we suppress it in our sin because we don't want to hear it. One other thing which I thought about doing last night but was running out of time, so I didn't, is if you have a map, so if you have a study Bible that has a map or you can look later on, you're going to see that God is speaking to all these nations that are surrounding Israel. He's got, his, he's got the pagan nations, Damascus to the northeast. You've got uh, Gaza to the southwest. You've got Tyre to the northwest. You've got then Israel's relatives with Edom to the southeast. And then you've got Am, uh, Ammon to the east and then Moab to the southeast, and then there's going to be Judah just to the south. And if you draw it out, like if you get a map and you draw it, you're basically going to see that what God is doing is he's, it's like he's drawing a bullseye or an X marks the spot right on Israel. And he's going to work from these pagan nations all the way through, through, the, through the nations, through their cousins, 
through Judah, their brother, and then straight into Israel, and the bullseye is going to be on them for the rest of the book. It's an interesting literary device that the Lord uses. All right, let's, let's work through these, these nations um, as best as we can, drawing out things from each, and then we're going to consider what it all means for us. 1-3, he turns to the neighbor, neighbor to the northeast, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke uh, the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and uh, the people of Sir, uh, Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Damascus was the capital of Syria. The Syrians were some of Israel's worst enemies in Amos' day. And, and God here recounts an evil that they performed during war, which is, uh, is told in 2 Kings chapter 10. Their evil is, again, verse 3, they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. This is a vivid agricultural metaphor. Typically what you would do in threshing is you would have an animal that would drag this heavy stone or several heavy boards that, were, um, that had iron prongs in them, and you would drag it across the grain, and what it would do is it would crush the grain and it would separate the chaff from the, the grain itself, and it would end up just pushing a lot of it into the, the ground, grinding it into the ground, if you will. God looks at Damascus, at the Syrians here, and he says, that's how you treated the people of Gilead. There was merciless brutality that you showed them. There was gruesome torturing of prisoners that I saw. There was harsh treatment of fellow image bearers. God sees it. God cares about it, and he roars against it here. Now, something that's very interesting as we look at each of these no doubt all of these nations sinned against God in their idolatry and everything. But the sins that God is highlighting for them are the sins against fellow humans. You see, when you, what you do to another person, you do to God. Whether it be love or hate, that's why Jesus would say, what you did to the least of these, you did unto me. What you do to fellow image bearers, image bearers of whom? Of God himself. God says the way you deal with fellow people, with your neighbor, with your enemy, is the way you deal with me. God's edict here, verse 4, I will send a devouring, a devouring fire upon the house of Hazael and Ben-Hadad. Those are kings. He will break the bar gate of Damascus. Those were used, it was a kind of a military tactic to protect your uh, city against a siege. He says, your, your military defense is going to be of, of no use against me when I come. And the people are going to go into exile in Kerr, which is very interesting. Uh, that was their place of origin. God's going to send them back where they came from. God ultimately did this and fulfilled it in 732 B.C. when the Assyrians came and took them off into exile and burned their city. 
God then moves to a neighbor to the southwest. Verse 6, the Lord, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. And I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ascalon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant uh, remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Gaza is one of the five Philistine cities. The Philistines, of course, were great enemies of Israel as well. What was their evil? Well, again, verse 6, they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. The Philistines had evidently captured a people group and handed them over to be enslaved by the Edomites, or enslaved by the Edomites. They had kidnapped human beings. They had trafficked human beings. They had enslaved fellow image bearers. Which we could just read over that and just keep going, but last night I took a little bit of time to read a section from The Weeping Time. The Weeping Time is a book that recounts March 2nd and 3rd, 1859. It was a day in which the the Butler family of Georgia sold 436 African-American men, women, and children, including 30 babies. And you could read accounts of husbands begging to not be separated from their wives, or parents screaming and crying when their children were taken out of their arms and sold like a goat. In this land, The Butler family made $306,000 that day. $6.7 million in our money today, if you will. Real people. The Philistines did this. What's, what's really interesting is that all the commentators seem to agree that nobody knows exactly when this occurred. In, in the Philistines' history. But God knows it occurred. Because God sees it all. He sees every bit of it. He sees all the evils that don't make the nightly news and everything that's not trending with some hashtag on Twitter. He sees everything. And he cares about it all. And he roars against it. His edict there in verse 7, that he's going to send fire in, in like measure, which came for the Philistines when the Assyrians came and conquered their cities and deported them, just like God said. Which, by the way, one of the things I want to highlight is that we're going to see temporal judgments, meaning judgments that happen in time, that are serious and severe but nothing compared to the judgment that will come on the last day when all people are brought before the Lord God Almighty and the books are opened and evaluated for everything that they did. Whatever horrors come in this day, 
It's nothing compared to that day when God will judge justly and truly and rightly all things. Verse 9, he turns to the neighbor to the northwest. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Tyre and Sidon were coastland cities in Phoenicia. They were a very powerful uh, cities that controlled shipping in and out so they could rack up the prices for everybody. They were extremely wealthy. And what was their evil? Well, they too joined the Philistines in human trafficking here. But they also, which, which by the way, I just think it's important to notice how the powerful are often tempted to treat people as commodities, to use them and abuse them. This is not just slave trade, but in, in all things, if you have authority, be very careful how you use it. People can get in your way, and you can do whatever you need to to get them out of it and not see them as image bearers or use them for your ends. Something else they did here, they, they broke a covenant that was made to promote peace. We don't know exactly what this was in regards to the covenant of brotherhood that he's speaking here, but, but it is something interesting to think about for nations. So for those of you who influence law and help think about policy and, and international affairs, it is evil to make deceitful treaties and not intend to keep them. And it is evil to break treaties then enacted to promote and uphold peace. Doesn't mean there's not times to break treaties. But ones that are in place, if you remove those in order to do evil, God says it's evil. Isn't it amazing here how the Lord can, can see what's going on in nations and individuals? He knows when a hair drops from your head, and he knows when a civilization's about to rise and fall all at the same time. Well, God sees, and he cares, and he roars. God's edict, much like the others, he's sending a fiery judgment which came for them, ultimately and finally, Tyre and Sidon, at the hands of Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. One of the things just to point out here as we're going through is that God often uses nations to judge other nations. God often uses nations to judge other nations. He will allow wicked nations to have their way with other wicked nations as an act of his sovereign justice. So Assyria rules the world, then Babylon eats Syria as a judgment for Assyria's sins. But Babylon's got their sins, so God uses Medes and Persians to get them. And then Greece gets them, and then Rome gets them, and so on. Until the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes with his final stage of the kingdom, and every knee will bow, every king will confess that Jesus Christ is the righteous King of kings and Lord of lords, and everyone will bow to him. Verse 11, he moves now to the, uh, one, of his, one of their relatives to the southeast. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. 
the descendants of Esau here, the Edomites, this is Jacob's brother. This was a cousin of Israel, if you will. They were often at war as well. They're evil. Well, again, we already know that they've been implicated in kidnapping and slavery, right? But we also see here that they had this bitter hatred for Israel that led them to withhold pity from them. They had this anger that was inflamed against them that, that, that enlarged their, their wrath. And on numerous occasions, they basically jumped in with enemies who were coming against Israel. It would be like if you got into a fight with the bully at school, and then your cousin jumps in and starts hitting you like the bully was. God says, that is wicked. You don't love your cousin. You don't love your, you don't love your brother. Rather, you've got this, this anger and this, this hatred. You've got this bitterness in you that's driving you to do evil to them. This, I think, is a, should be a sober warning for us. We see how it's playing out here in nations, but seeds of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness, they grow. They don't sit dormant. They're alive. And anger, bitterness will lead to injustice. It fuels sinful actions. And the withholding of love, this happened for centuries with the Edomites toward Israel. God's edict, again, he promises a fire of judgment. Obadiah also, by the way, if you're going to read more about coming after the Edomites, Obadiah, the whole book, one chapter, is about them. The Nabataeans initially destroyed the Edomites in 400 B.C., and then Rome finally wiped them off the planet in 70 A.D. Verse 13, we now move to a relative to the east. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they may enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. The Ammonites, just like the Moabites, who are going to be the, the next one in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, these were cousins, again, of Israel. They were, they were descendants of, of Lot's offspring with his daughters. They were all continual enemies of Israel. The Ammonites here, it says that they ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. This is an utterly gruesome sort of war crime that that sometimes armies would do to, to seek to end, not only to, to end the future generations of nations, to humiliate and to kill the women. And you notice that God says here the reason they did it was so they could get property. So they could get prosperity. They could enlarge their border. Merciless wanton cruelty against helpless people, all for a little more land. God says, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Ramah, Rabbath, the, the, the capital city, which ultimately happened when Babylon came and destroyed them in 6th century B.C. And then finally, Moab, for three transgressions, for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. This is, sounds like something that, 
that maybe not be super familiar with us, but they were desecrating an Edomite uh, king's tomb. And that, again, may not resonate with us, but in ancient Palestine, this is extremely hostile. And it dishonored that person and their family and their whole nation. And God says, I'm going to send fire upon them, which Babylon brought in 6th century B.C. I think it's important for us to notice as we look through all of this that, that sinful actions against human beings provoke righteous actions from God Almighty. God sees, he cares, he makes lists, and he roars against injustice. I wonder what might God say if the next country was there was ours. For three transgressions of the United States of America and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because what do you think he might fill in there? You see, as we hear these indictments on nations, it ought to humble us. Our country has been and is currently guilty of many of these same sorts of sins. Greed drives this nation. It fueled the enslavement of Africans and Indians, and it's, it's not a thing of the past. Today, human trafficking abounds in our land. The United States consumes and cultivates a sex slave trade here in our nation. The greatest uh, source of pornography in the world comes from this land. Prostitution where hopeless and helpless boys and girls are preyed upon, oftentimes poor and have nobody to help them in our land. Racism is a sin that has stained our nation for its entire existence, and we can't get away from it. No matter what we do, we can't seem to escape it. It's like God says, this will be in your face as long as you live. To see the ramifications of the evils done to people who have different color skin than you. It happened formally in our history through laws and the ripple effects still linger and sometimes resound today. There's a pride in this nation that dismisses God and his word everywhere. Mute him. We don't want to hear his oppressive words. There's the heinous sin of abortion legally allows children to be killed in the womb of their mother. We would look at what the Ammonites did there in Gilead and think that is horrific. But it's not much different than what happens here. I do not say that without compassion and tenderness. For those of you who have sinned in that way, it's part of my past. There's blood on my hands. That's why Christ came and he died for sinners like me, like you. But our nation is marked by these sins, slander, 
gossip, embitterment, enraged at one another, where we forget who we're talking to. Sometimes behind screens, we would say things to people that we would never say to their face, dehumanizing them. We feel at a distance. We endanger one another. Think of the charging of the Capitol this past week, earlier this summer with the burning of businesses and endangerment of lives. There's corruption in our courts and business because we want to make money. We love money. In God we trust? No, our God is money. We love it. We use people to get it. There's abuse of rulers and authorities. Injustice has marked our history and it scars our present. And when we hear these words against these Gentile nations, it should not make us say, I hope they listen. It should make us tremble and drop to our knees and say, we are not that different as a nation. This is why we as God's people, if indeed we are God's people, must ensure that we are not caught up in the same sorts of sins that the world is ensnared in. Next week, we'll talk about ways that we might be. But I do want to encourage us as a unique nation that has opportunity to elect leaders, that we ought to be very wise to elect leaders who will work for righteousness and justice and to not further evils that God hates. And those of us those of you who have opportunity and authority to influence laws and legislation, do your job as best you can in the fear of God and not the fear of man. Because we stand before a Lord who roars against injustice and he sees and he, he knows and he cares and he will bring judgment. As we conclude, I want to give us three brief exhortations that should be plain from our text. The first is this, take courage. God oversees all things and overlooks nothing. Take courage because God oversees all things and he overlooks nothing. Nothing takes place in God's universe that he doesn't know about. God reads the news and he sees what's not in the news. He knows what nations do to one another. He knows what neighbors do to one another. He knows what spouses do to one another. He knows what friends do to one another. And that ought, for those of us who hope in God, bring a comfort in the midst of a world where it feels like it's out of control and that there's no real hope. But God would say, take courage because I see and I care and I roar against injustice and injustice will not have the last laugh in God's universe. These are scary times in which we live for many. And I want you to know that you can take comfort and refuge in God Almighty. So flee from your sin and flee unto God through Christ by faith. God sees, he cares, he roars. So take courage. 
Secondly, take warning. Take warning. We must not overlook our own evils. Again, we would do our souls a disservice if we looked at the sins of others, whether these in the text or our nation and its history, and we, f- we felt comfort alone. D- do not be deceived that this, the seeds of sin that sprouted large in the hearts of the peoples of these nations, they abide in our hearts as well. You have to remember that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that God is concerned with the heart that anger is in the family of murder, that lust is in the family of adultery. It's not the same in severity, but all lead to condemnation before a holy God. How are you tempted in your greed to use people as an end or as a means to an end? How, are you, how do you steal from people? How do you... How do you dehumanize one another for gain? How do you speak to and about fellow human beings? Do you have the same sort of dehumanizing, calloused hardness of heart that's seen here, maybe as a seed, but but is that in you? For those of you who are looking at pornography, you've got to remember that that the reason that there's sex trafficking and prostitution and the reason there's so much enslavement of boys and girls, men and women in that industry is because your looking fuels it. Are you tempted to withhold sympathy from fellow humans? Maybe because they vote differently than you? Maybe because they view serious issues differently than you? Do you harbor Ammonite bitterness in your heart? It would do us well to do some soul searching and say, Lord, how are my sins like those? And then finally, take opportunity before God's patience runs out. Take opportunity before God's patience runs out. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, Romans 2 says, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The very fact that you hear these words today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, or if you do know him, but you are harboring sin in your heart, this is mercy from God. He is being patient with us. How long, I do not know. But today is the day to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. The roar of God's wrath is in our day as well. And I don't know how it will come, but it's already coming with him giving us over to our sin, but it will come whether it be with the Lord Jesus' return or before then. But the hope for sinners is Christ, that the roar of God's wrath is quieted at the cross because the lion became a lamb 
And there he suffered and died and took the judgment that we deserved for all of these sins and many more. He took them upon himself and the righteous, good justice of God fell upon him who knew no sin. And then he went into the grave receiving the death that we deserve. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he promises no matter where you've been or what you've done, that if you hear his call for mercy, that you should turn and flee unto Jesus. And he will forgive you. And he will reconcile you unto himself. Flee from the wrath to come. The lion roars. Come unto Jesus as a lamb. And he will stand in your stead. And he will forgive your sins. Next week, we're going to think about what it means to, for God's people, respond now in doing righteousness in all of the ways that we can be exposed for not doing so and the way we can lean upon him for, for grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask for help. We are a nation that needs mercy, and you have been oh so patient. So, Father, would you, in your kindness, extend grace to each of us wherever we are in this journey? Would you summon us to yourself? Lord, we thank you for this book of Amos and the way that it points out our sins and the sins of our nation. And we thank you for the way that it points us to Jesus and the way that he suffered and died and then rose that we might have hope. God, would you change us and help us to be a people who are pleasing in your sight. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.